Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Last time, we talked about the people of Limhi who escaped from their Lamanite captors in the land of Nephi and returned to the land of Zarahemla. But whatever happened to Alma, the young priest who fled from King Noah with a group of followers? Where did they go and what happened to them? And what happened to King Noah's priests who abducted and disappeared with 24 Lamanite girls? We'll be discussing both of those today in Mosiah chapters 23 through 25. We will also talk about some clues that these chapters provide into Book of Mormon geography and politics. Several chapters ago, King Noah sent his army to destroy Alma and his roughly 450 followers. But Alma was warned they were coming and escaped with his people into the wilderness. They traveled for eight days with their grain, flocks, and herds until they reached a beautiful land with pure water. They stopped and settled and began to plant crops and construct buildings. Alma's people asked him to be their king, but he refused. Verse 7, But he said unto them, Behold, it is not expedient that we should have a king. For thus saith the Lord, Ye shall not esteem one flesh above another, or one man shall not think himself above another. Therefore I say unto you, It is not expedient that ye should have a king. Then he added, almost as an afterthought, Nevertheless, if it were possible that ye could always have just men to be your kings, it would be well for you to have a king. For 500 years, the Nephites had been governed by kings. Other options simply were not known to them. But Alma did not like the idea of a king. He reminded his people that King Noah brought them into bondage, both economically through high taxes and spiritually by causing them to sin. They should enjoy their newfound liberty and free agency and not give anyone the ability to enslave them. Furthermore, remembering King Noah's priests, they shouldn't trust anyone to be their spiritual leader unless they obeyed the commandments of God. So instead of a monarchy, Alma instituted a form of theocracy. He organized the church and was their high priest. He consecrated good and just men to be their teachers and priests, and under the care and guidance of these leaders, the people prospered. The name they gave to their new settlement was Helam, and they began to build the city of Helam. And that brings us to our trivia question from last time. What was the name of the first person that Alma baptized in the waters of Mormon? In Mosiah chapter 18, Alma baptized 204 converts, it says, beginning with a man named Helam. You'll probably remember that when he baptized Helam, both Alma and Helam immersed themselves in the water. So. The answer to today's trivia question is Helam. In chapter 18, we might not attach any significance to Helam being baptized first, but here in chapter 23, it seems that Helam was probably rather important or influential. They named their land and their city after him. Remember, Alma was only 25 years old at the time, so although Alma was the group's spiritual leader, perhaps Helam led in other ways. Now, admittedly, that's conjecture on my part, we don't really know for sure, but they established the land of Helam and all was going well. 
But Norman, who is the narrator of this record, gives the following warning or foreshadowing in verse 21. Nevertheless, the Lord seeth fit to chasten his people. Yea, he trieth their patience and their faith. Nevertheless, whosoever putteth his trust in him, the same shall be lifted up at the last day. Yea, and thus it was with this people. One day, while Alma's followers were tilling their fields, they saw an army of Lamanites at their borders. They were frightened and abandoned their fields and gathered to the city. Alma joined them and told them not to be afraid, but to trust the Lord and they would be delivered. They surrendered to the Lamanites, and the Lamanites took possession of the land of Helam. However, quote, the Lord did soften the hearts of the Lamanites, and they did not slay the Nephites. Mormon, the narrator, explained how it was that the Lamanites discovered the land of Helam. In the last video, we discussed the priest of King Noah who kidnapped a group of Lamanite daughters that they found dancing in Shemlon. After kidnapping them, they left Shemlon and found a place where they could live with their abducted wives. The leader of the group was named Amulon, so that is what they named their settlement. We also talked about the people of Limhi escaping from their Lamanite captors by making their guards drunk. While the guards were drunk and incapacitated, the people of Limhi fled with their flocks and herds into the wilderness. Eventually, the Lamanite army got itself together and went after them. After two days, the Lamanite army not only lost the trail of at least several hundred families traveling with flocks and herds, but they became so lost that they could not even find their way home. Verse 30 tells us that the armies of the Lamanites, which had followed after the people of King Limhi, had been lost in the wilderness for many days. And after being lost in the wilderness for many days, they stumbled into the land of Amulon, where the missing Lamanite girls were living with their captors, the missing priests of Noah. Amulon and the other priests pled for mercy and sent forth their wives, who were the daughters of the Lamanites, to plead with their brethren that they should not destroy their husbands, it says. Verse 34, And the Lamanites had compassion on Amulon and his brethren, and did not destroy them because of their wives. So why did these Lamanite girls plead on behalf of their kidnappers? The obvious answer, I guess, is Stockholm Syndrome. That's a condition where hostages or captives form a bond with their captors. But there's also the fact that they had been taken captive more than 20 years earlier, and the wives apparently took a liking to them eventually. I was surprised by how willing Amulon and his group were to abandon their new settlement and join the lost, wandering army of the Lamanites that found them. Together, they searched for a way back to the land of Nephi, which is a little strange because Amulon's people had been stealing from Lamai's people in the land of Nephi. But along their way, they stumbled into the land of Helam, where Alma's people lived. The discovery of Alma's people in the land of Helam tells us how truly lost the Lamanites were. The Lamanites lost Limhi's trail just two days after leaving the land of Nephi. Mosiah 23.3 tells us that Helam was a whole eight-day journey from the land of Nephi. Instead of getting closer to home, this lost Lamanite army had wandered six days further into the wilderness. So when this lost and wandering army discovered Alma's settlement, they didn't pillage and plunder them, but they simply asked them for directions home. Verse 36, And it came to pass that the Lamanites promised unto Alma and his brethren 
that if they would show them the way which led to the land of Nephi, that they would grant unto them their lives and their liberty. So Alma happily pointed them toward the land of Nephi, but, verse 37, but after Alma had shown them the way that led to the land of Nephi, the Lamanites would not keep their promise, but they set guards round about the land of Helam over Alma and his brethren. Here's what I don't understand. How did a group that had the skills necessary to survive for months in the wilderness become so disoriented after only two days that they couldn't even find their own way home? What type of terrain allowed for this type of confusion? Perhaps the land was full of lakes, hills, natural barriers. It probably also had some dependable landmarks because once Alma described the route home, they never became lost again. Some Lamanite guards remained in Helam as an occupying military force. The rest of the army marched back to the land of Nephi. A few of them later returned with the family members of the guards left to occupy Helam. Amulon, the leader of King Noah's disgraced priests, was not punished ever for abducting the, the Lamanite daughters, but was made king and ruler over Alma and the other occupants of Helam. And that seems wrong somehow, that Noah's former priests, who were cursed by Abinadi and promised death and destruction, would become taskmasters of Alma and his righteous people. Aren't wicked people supposed to be punished? It eventually ends badly for Amulon's people, but for now, Amulon and the priests seem to be winning. The king of the Lamanites assigned Amulon and King Noah's other former priests to be teachers to the Lamanites in the land of Shemlon, Shilom, and Amulon. Those are all three kind of grouped near the land of Nephi. And he appointed teachers of the brethren of Amulon in every land which was possessed by his people. And thus the language of the Nephites began to be taught among all the people of the Lamanites. It appears that they specifically taught the written language of the Nephites, which allowed them to write, keep records, and communicate with each other. Verse 7 and thus the Lamanites began to increase in riches and began to trade one with another and wax great and began to be a cunning and a wise people as to the wisdom of the world, a very cunning people delighting in all manner of wickedness and plunder, except it were among their own brethren. So the Lamanites, who were already wicked and dishonest, started to become smart. And Amulon, meanwhile, was enjoying his role as king over Alma's people. He recognized who Alma was, that he was his former fellow priest, and he was the one who had sympathized with Abinadi and who King Noah had condemned. Amulon burdened Alma's people with heavy tasks and strict taskmasters. When they began to pray for deliverance, he instructed the guards to kill anyone who they found praying. So instead of praying vocally, Alma's people poured out their hearts to God in silence, and he did know the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 13, And it came to pass that the voice of the Lord came unto them in their affliction, saying, Lift up your heads, and be of good comfort. For I know of the covenant which ye have made unto me, and I will covenant with my people, and deliver them out of bondage. And I will also ease the burdens which are put upon your shoulders, that even you cannot feel them upon your backs, even while you are in bondage. And this will I do, that you may stand as witnesses for me hereafter, and that ye may know of a surety that I, the Lord, do visit my people in their afflictions. It's interesting that they still had to carry their burdens, but they felt lighter. 
They were light enough, the scripture says, that the people bore them easily, and they did submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord. That might be a typical example of how God helps us. He didn't deliver his people from their captors while they were struggling and crying for help. Instead, per verse 16, the prerequisites for deliverance were faith and patience. When they requested rescue, he instead made them stronger. The good news is that unlike Limhi's people who were forced to serve the Lamanites for more than 20 years, it appears that Alma and his people were in bondage for much less time, possibly as little as a year. Verse 16, And it came to pass that so great was their faith and their patience that the Lord came unto them again, saying, Be of good comfort, for on the morrow I will deliver you out of bondage. God told Alma that the day of their deliverance had arrived. He instructed Alma to have his people spend the night gathering their flocks and grain and preparing for their departure. When morning came, their Lamanite captors remained in a deep sleep, oblivious to their escape. Alma's people traveled all day and pitched their tents in what was called the Valley of Alma. Then they marched onward, and 12 days later, Alma's group arrived in the land of Zarahemla, and its inhabitants received them with joy. So for anyone keeping score, Alma's group traveled eight days in their original flight from Nephi to the land of Helam, and then 13 days from Helam to the land of Zarahemla. So how far was the city of Nephi from the land of Zarahemla? Well, it was 21 days travel for a large group carrying provisions. After escaping their Lamanite and Amulonite captors, Alma's group joined Mosiah's people in Zarahemla. Verse 1, And now King Mosiah caused that all the people should be gathered together. Most of the people who lived in Zarahemla were descendants of Mulek. Mulek was the only surviving son of Zedekiah, who was the king of Jerusalem at the time that Lehi departed. The rest of the people of Zarahemla were descendants of Lehi. Verse 3 tells us, And there were not so many of the people of Nephi and of the people of Zarahemla as there were of the Lamanites. Yea, they were not half so numerous. Why were there so many Lamanites? The Nephites, Lamanites, and Mulekites arrived at roughly the same time, but 500 years later, the Lamanite population outnumbered the combined Nephites and Mulekites. I see at least two explanations for this that are not mutually exclusive. One explanation, which is supported by archaeology, is that the Americas were not entirely vacant when Lehi arrived. And just as the people of Nephi and Zarahemla merged into one group, the Lamanites may have united with other groups as they encountered them. We talked about that a little bit in 2 Nephi chapter 1. Alternately, the distinction between Nephites and Lamanites may have been ideological. And so anyone not wishing to practice the law of Moses was classified as a Lamanite. Alma chapter 21 verse 2 talks about a Lamanite city being built with the help of Nephite descenders. Anytime descenders left the Nephites, it reduced the numbers of the Nephites and it swelled the ranks of the Lamanites. But one way or another, the Lamanites had the Nephites badly outnumbered. And this will become a lot more important in the second half of the book of Alma. Mosiah gathered his people into two groups, the Nephites and the Mulekites, and then he read them Zenith's story. It began with Zenith's departure from Zarahemla 80 years ago and ended with his people's return. 
hearing this story was unlike anything the audience had ever experienced. It's easy for us to forget how quiet the world was until recently. Modern life is full of music, information, and entertainment. But until the last century, if you wanted to hear a song, you needed to either perform or sing it yourself or persuade someone else to perform it for you. People would walk miles to hear someone play a fiddle or perform on an organ. Music, singing, or theater was usually a very, very rare treat. By contrast, nowadays we can easily hear history's most incredible performances with just a few clicks. So Zenith's record as read to his subjects by King Mosiah was probably the best, most action-packed story they had ever heard, and it was all true. It says they were struck with such wonder and amazement that, quote, they knew not what to think. They wept for their brethren slain by the Lamanites and rejoiced at their deliverance from bondage. They rejoiced for Alma's escape and lamented and cried for the wicked state of the Lamanites. Among those attending this public reading were the half-Lamanite children of King Noah's priests. Although the priest's wives had pled to the Lamanites and kept them from killing their husbands, it seems that their husbands really were not good guys. When Alma's group escaped from Amulon and the Lamanite guards, a lot of the priest's children ran away with them. Although by this point, they might have been as old as 20 years old. This is one of the rare cases where Lamanite descenders left and joined the Nephites. Here's verse 12. And it came to pass that those who were the children of Amulon and his brethren, who had taken to wife the daughters of the Lamanites, were displeased with the conduct of their fathers, and they would no longer be called by the names of their fathers. Therefore they took upon themselves the name of Nephi, that they might be called the children of Nephi and be numbered among those who were called Nephites. Verse 13 gives us an insight, or a small peek into Zarahemla's politics. Verse 13, And now all the people of Zarahemla were numbered with the Nephites, and this because his kingdom had been conferred upon none but those who were descendants of Nephi. Now, I don't know whether this means that only Nephites had been full citizens before that happened, but both Mulekites and Amulon's children were counted among the Nephites from this time forward. After Mosiah finished reading Zenith's record and finished speaking, Alma went among the people preaching repentance and faith and encouraging Limhi's people to remember that the Lord had delivered them from bondage. Limhi and his people asked Alma to baptize them, and he baptized them just as he had baptized their brethren in the waters of Mormon. Although, instead of being a 25-year-old young man this time, Alma would have been in his early 50s, probably around 53. Mosiah allowed Alma to establish churches throughout the land, forming seven churches in Zarahemla. The Lord poured out his spirit and the people prospered. And that's all we have for today. But let's close with a trivia question. I've mentioned Alma's age a few times, as well as King Mosiah's age. How do we know how old they are? If you know this one, answer in the comments. We'll, we'll need a chapter and a verse. What chapter and verse tell us the age of Mosiah and Alma? And we will see you next time.